Let me take you back. Take me back. All right, right back to the beginning of really computers and intelligence in my view. That's pretty far. Um, well, we're not talking Enigma. We're talking when I... Back in the 80s. Oh, right. like the Commodore 64? <laughs> not quite that back. Oh. But look, you know, we had some amazing technology yeah. right, when I was working at ASIO, uh, including we the Daisy Wheel printer got its own office. <laughs> I know, that's the problem. We had computers, but they were massive. No, it wasn't massive. This thing was so loud, we put it in a soundproof box, <laughs> in a soundproof office, and you could still hear this thing going, yeah, 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 right? Nightmare. Now, that, there wasn't a lot of computing. It was mainly paper. And yep. we generated a lot of paper, hence the Daisy Wheel printer. Then we started moving into intelli- well, information uh, technology mm. as it was to reduce the paper and you know we wound up with 264k or 286k computers that's kilobytes yeah, they were not big. You're, if you had a fight between a desktop at ASIO in yep. the 80s and an iPhone, the iPhone would kick its ass to the, ca- the, the clouds. 100%. Absolutely smashed. But leap forward to now and technology is the thing. The thing. And like ASIO, back then ASIO's computer department wasn't really very big. Now it's it's almost all of what it does is cyber. And the big problem we have with that is I know nothing about it. No, you don't. I'm absolutely hopeless that I could barely get onto Netflix. So we got an expert in today. Great. Ready to talk to him? Yes. Let's do it. You're listening to iSpy, the malware of Australian security. I'm just popping up everywhere. Do not click on me. <laughs> do not click on you. Hello and welcome to I Spied. My name's Michelle Stevenson. I'm a journalist. I'm with David Callan. We, I think we know what you do or what no, you did. No one knows what I did there. I, like, even no. I don't know what I did there. No. I was terrible. No. Well, so uh, we we know that you don't know a lot sometimes. I mean, you do. You know stuff. I know stuff, but this subject I know nothing about. Nothing about. Absolutely. So we thought we'd bring in an expert. Yes. Um, why don't you introduce him? I'd like to introduce our expert, and he is an internationally renowned expert on security, uh, surveyed so. Survey in the top twenty. Top twenty. Yeah, you know where I am. I'm not even in no, the no, no. top thousand. No, no. Right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome. Round of applause for Jason Brown. Hi, Jason. Hi, Jason. Uh, hi, guys. Um, privileged to be on such an illustrious program. <laughs> oh yeah, you you clearly have not listened to it before, have you? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, that's what we I, like to hear. I, I, I'm a podcast Triple J slash uh, Spotify. Fan for interesting, interesting and oh, odd podcasts. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, great. you're on an odd podcast now, mate. <laughs> you, now, you've niched it out. <laughs> now, Jason, how do we describe what you do? Okay, look, um, I, I have a whole bunch of roles, and some of them are to help set international standards to guide cybersecurity, resilience, uh, general security architecture, supply chain security management, things like that. So I chair an international committee for the International Standards Organisation uh, out of Geneva on risk management, and it has the 
major international standard on risk management adopted by 57 countries. But there's also committees on cyber security, and they all have stupid numbers, you know, TC27 of JTC1, because there's so many of these things that it gets very confusing. So so mm. what I would say to all that is I sit on committees that deal with security, resilience, cyber security, and governance in those international committees. I also work for TALUS, which is one of the world's biggest aerospace and defence companies, to ensure they have a secure operating environment to enable them to work with government nationally and internationally and maintain air traffic control systems, banking cryptography, and so on. So it keeps me a bit busy. I was going to say, you really must have a lot of spare time. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the reason we, we've got you is to talk cybersecurity. And what's been interesting is we've seen what's happened to the Nine Network recently. Yep. Uh, Fairfax, I got an email from Fairfax saying, sorry, we can't give you the paper today. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is big. A whole media company, probably one of the first times that it would have happened in a Western society that a big media company has been brought to its knees with a cyber attack. Is this, is this unusual or is this something that we, we're going to see more of? Well, we're going to see more of for a whole range of reasons because some of these attacks and not, not particularly the, the TCN9 attack, but let's go back a little bit to um, Sony and others with the program they made about North Korea, which made fun of the dear leader. They were attacked... Um, mm brought down their systems, etc. So it can be a political tool, it can be a weaponised activity to reduce capability for Defence Force society, understand political decision-making or alter it by putting in false but plausible information into systems covertly. So we live in a world of pandas, dragons and brown and black bears uh, is what the advanced persistent threat groups are called. And so, you know, you have Fat Panda and Happy Panda and uh, and they are what they call advanced persistent threat groups, generally state-based, but we also have very sophisticated criminal groups who are cyber thieves for hire um, uh, and also then they produce mm. and just steal general stuff like your bank account and things. So the digital war at various levels is going on all the time and what you see with uh, the Nine Network or an attack on Parliament House or the American elections, they can be an agent of influence to influence voting patterns, or they can be attempt to understand the decision-making in order to preempt or respond in advance to a decision being made by the Australian Parliament, or they can just be someone who's a criminal who intends to launch a, um, a ransomware attack. And, and they're all, all these different characteristics, but essentially it is the weaponization of the digital world for criminal and state-based aggression. Yeah. Now, I mean, as you said, you've got all the pandas and the bears and the dragons. Like, the Russians have fancy bear, cosy bear. Yeah, yeah, all that. Bear, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, they do. These are the different – these are cyber warriors. They're called cyber warriors. And because there was Guccifer and, I mean, the, the, I think there's the interesting thing about it is – and please correct me if I'm wrong, but there seems to be this real – there is that, despite the fact that it's a cyber attack, there is a very, very human element towards it. The Russians are having competitions right now between different universities mm. to basically recruit better hackers. So that if you get a better mark at a better university, if your university wins this hacking competition, you're more likely to get a job working oh, for yeah. the I have to say Australia does that too. Right. Australia runs exercises <laughs> for, for, for the best university students and you win That's a prize the for, for, for network defence and stuff. Yeah, it's great fun. Terrific fun. 
So how much of it, of cyber attacks, how much of it is politically driven as opposed to monetary driven? Oh, look, the vast majority are scams of one description or another to take your money because that's what criminals do, take your identity, take your money. There's two parts to this. There's the intelligence collection part of uh, the cyber environment, which is to understand the intentions of foreign countries Mm. in respect to you and your beliefs. Then there's the desire to alter the operating environment by feeding information in through various forms from your Twitterverse to to your LinkedIns, etc. All of them provide a vehicle to support a strategy. If your strategy is to influence a company or a country, you do that. If you want to bring something down, you can attack them by denial of service operations or you can actually trash yes. their reputation. Yes. Is this the new way forward? Is this going to, Are we going to just see this become more and more prevalent and is this something that we're just going to have to really get ready for from a security perspective as Australians? We, we definitely have to be more ready than we are. Go- government and, and, and government agencies such as the Australian Cybersecurity, they're fully conscious of all of this. The, the, the weak point is the individual, whether they be in a department or a business, who opens the door effectively. All um, You can build the best castle of, of digits and ones in the world, but if someone, yeah. for their own reasons, either malignantly or out of stupidity, opens the door... The door's open. So the, there is a lot of understanding and backing in, of human motivation to determine what it is that will trigger someone to engage, develop a dialogue, and be led down a path without them even being aware that they potentially a cyber attack vector for their business or company. Well, that was the thing that was coming out of the United States, and also Australians have been warned about. There was a case in America where a CIA, I think it was a CIA guy, was picked up on LinkedIn by the Minister of Security in China, and how they're using LinkedIn as as a front to recruit assets. You were talking about how it comes down to the individual opening, letting the enemy inside the castle, but how secure is the castle? Considering I remember back in the day when I worked at ASIO, it was a completely sealed system. You couldn't get into the system because it was a locked system within itself. Now with the internet, how the internet has grown, are we allowing foreign actors influence and penetration because we've opened ourselves to that attack? Uh, no, the answer to that is yes and no, which is always a good answer. The yes yeah, is yeah. we have a lot of material out there that would be better not to share with threat actors um, and they're in open systems. Yeah. But the decision is made about what is the value. The question you have to determine is what are the crown jewels of your enterprise, be it a technology one, a policy one, a strategy one. And and the only safe, or the, and even this isn't safe if you have an insider gone wrong, the safest place... To keep this is, of course, on a separate system. So most government agencies run multiple separate systems for yeah. one reason or another, as we do in our company. So the, the access to that system is controlled. It stands alone. It's not on the internet. Sometimes it can be networked using high-quality encryption. But, you know, there's biometric logons, so people just can't get on the network. But the, the open systems, the systems that you use your email on, uh, a persistent threat actor will find a way to get access through a human vector, through a technical vector, through a third-party provider. There's so many third-party provider attacks, the people that do your finance, the people that do your HR, the people that, as uh, Walmart found out, the person that managed the, um, the air conditioning 
they got into the Walmart Seriously? System. Yeah, so the, in order to ensure that the stores were properly managed, the air conditioning vendor was linked into the Walmart system so that it could monitor the stores for temperature and issues and problems, but that created a two-way link and uh, cyber criminals got into the Walmart system via the air conditioning company. Yeah, from my understanding, the, a, lot, a lot of these cyber criminals will just keep plugging in and plugging in and plugging in until they find that weakness. I know Microsoft Outlook was a massive, had massive issues mm. in terms of um, threats. I know even at my company, we have had to really tighten up our Outlook and how we how we get into it and how we have access to it, which I think more and more companies are just having to do. Is there something that is going to help companies moving forward i mean because we have to use these tools we have to be able to use zoom we have to be able to use microsoft outlook we're going to have to use this is there a way around strengthening this it's about education Uh, in discussion with some u.s colleagues we have to bring cyber education into the kindergarten i mean you don't let a child of four walk out into the main road yeah right you will let a child of six be on your home computer and they're walking out of something that makes the, the main road look like a playground in terms of yeah. potential risk. So, so the issue is just like we teach children look left, look right, look left again, cross on the crossing, the concepts around living in a digital world have to be inculcated. To know just by looking at it, don't click on this. So a, a four-year-old child will step out in front of a car, but a child that's been supervised to five or six will look and not step out in front of the car. So we actually have to get people understanding that. Now, it's nearly impossible given most of the... I mean, not most. Many parents are cyber illiterate. Mm. So, so how it's done is going to be really difficult. But I believe to create a safer cyber environment, you actually have to start that young with those people. And the people helping them need to actually understand. And, of course, the, the, people, the psychology behind a cyber attack, they crash into a dating site, um, people have put their jobs down there, therefore their profile, yeah. and it's all done automatically. I mean, you've got machine learning and, and, and newly enhanced and developing AI capabilities who can do that analysis for you. You don't even have to look. And then if you're generating, because you've got a botnet or something, you can be generating thousands and tens of thousands of attempts to get into the system, and you only need one to get through. And look, let's be honest, look what happened to the Attorney General's phone when his kid got a hold of it. Wiped it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Right? And now if that child had been, had been educated correctly, he would not have deleted his dad's phone. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> for me, and you make a very valid point in terms of, like, children. I, I completely agree with you. I'm lucky that my son, whenever he gets those pop-ups, he always asks me what he should press yeah. before he presses them. But it's so easy. I could see how parents would just be like, just press just press that. Always press that. Do you know what I mean? Just to, like, get it well, off. There is that whole thing of, you know, child care through the screen and there's a lot of that. I mean, I my boys, they're teenagers, so iPhones and iPads weren't really around when they were small. Now they're the ones looking at me going, Dad, don't click on that. Oh, well, so my son did um, co-club from a really young age. So I think it, I think these children are starting to be a bit more savvy around things. But they're not as much boomer energy as opposed to David here. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, look I, think, I think that's right. Um, but that's still pretty limited. And, and look, even the best can get conned. I mean, spoofing of identities, people can simulate 
your mother, your father, your auntie, your sister, your brother, your best friend, if if they think that's of value. So I, I see, I keep a register of our very important people and who's attacking them, and occasionally you see them being spoofed. Uh, a classical one, mm-hmm. uh, some of the ones that have been very successful is you know, messages from the CEO to the Chief of Finance to do X, Y and Z, um, and uh, mm-hmm. transfer this to that account, etc., that happens, and, and so it's not just a child thing, but if we bring up a generation of children who understand the risk, just as they understand the risk of, of not crossing the road without taking safety precautions, not climbing a tree without thinking about it, there'll always be people who won't do that, though. <laughs> uh, and, and if you have them working for you, you can put your whole company at risk. Yeah. Now, let's get down to the brass tacks of this. How are we as a nation placed to counter cyber warfare? I think I would advise anyone to have a look at the Australian National Audit Report on cyber readiness and alignment to the uh, Information Security Manual and the Protective Security Policy Framework, and they found that despite... Can't wait. Can't can't wait to unpack that. (laughs) Well, I wasn't surprised, but I was shocked and disappointed at the level of readiness. Really? By what, particularly? Because they just weren't up to it. They just weren't up to it. They hadn't. Oh, really? They hadn't even met most of the mitigations that were recommended in the manual. It's it's um, it's a shock. It's a shock, but it shouldn't be a shock because lots of people talk security; they just don't do it. Yes, agreed. Because I mean, there's the classic story that you know ASIO's blueprints were hacked by the Chinese. The new building's blueprints were hacked, and the story goes that it was hacked from the builder's computer. But still, so we're lagging. Would be the best way to put it. Um, no, no, the world is lagging. Every Western country has the same set of problems. The Canadian Parliament gets attacked. Oh. The Senate gets attacked in the US. No, the problem is it is so Im- it's so active and so embedded. The philosophy in the company is is not it won't happen. It's it will happen. And what do we do? Because mm. it's 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 a race. Um, you make yourself very vulnerable in the race if you don't do your patching, you don't do your whitelisting, you don't have a whole range of training for your staff and people, you leave things in open spaces so people can access the machine. You know, one of the, one of the obvious policies is if people are travelling to foreign countries where there's a high level of risk, they don't take their phone and they don't take the computers. The company issues them with vanilla ones. Mm. When you get that computer back, you... In some countries, you invariably find there's been attempts to tamper with them. You can't put them back on your system. You have to destroy the motherboard or whatever. That's crazy. Wow. So let me ask you this. In terms of you're saying Western cultures aren't quite prepared, what is the worst case scenario? What could be the worst oh, thing that could happen gee. from us, from your perspective? Worst case scenario is... A virus that has all the effects of a major denial of service and corruption of data where you lose everything, that's one scenario. Uh, One of the things that's actually more insidious is the penetration of networks going undetected and creating changes in the information there that are subtle but take them in the direction that the adversary wants. The interesting thing when you say that, the the denial of service is one thing, but the the false information, there's a list from the Centre of Strategic and International Studies of major cyber incidents and literally it's just 
hundreds. And so you've got one which is uh, Polish security services announced that they suspected Russian hackers took control of their National Atomic Energy Agency and Health Ministry to fault, spread false alerts of a non-existent radioactive threat. I mean, there's that sort of thing, which is just it, – it instantly – creates a sense of doom and also distrust. But then I don't know if you've read John Birmingham, who's a wonderful author, mm. has written a great book, a series of books, about how essentially hackers completely destroy the supply chain in America, the computerization of the supply chain in America, and the system collapses. And can they do that? Oh, yeah, yeah, but they can. But it, it, takes, yeah. a, it takes a whole bunch of alignment to get there. And the question is, would they do it? And why would they do it? You have to go back to the intentions and yeah. capability. Mm. So a foreign government has the intention to be a bit disruptive, not get caught or not get obviously caught. They don't mind if they're accused, but that, but proving it's a different issue. Um, but their interest in is, is shaping that external environment. If we were at war, though, it would be a different issue. They'd be after a kinetic effect. So, for example, if you wanted to attack the United States, you would run a series of attacks concurrently on power systems, hospitals, transport systems, and mm -hmm. so on. Now, it would take a long time in the planning and would take a fair bit of consistency, but if you pick the right nodes, um, an attack on three or four nodes can bring down the East Coast power system in the United States. That is all, that's that's five-year-old information. I suspect it's changed now. But we think about cyber in terms of a, a PC or a computer or a computing centre or a cloud or whatever. The whole issue of operational technology, most people know about the SCADA attacks on Iran's nuclear reactor, etc. But so much of our world runs on SCADA yeah. and so much of our world is connected by uh, Internet of Things that you start to have to think really holistically about the digital environment and the thing that could bring down the rail system would not be a, a big attack on the computer systems. It could be a very specific attack on the operational management system for the switching. So to sum it up, where are we at and what are we got to do to fix it? Okay. <laughs> Just sum it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 25 I, words or less. I, I, would, I would say that, that in Australia and the United States and in China and Russia, for that matter, there is a deep understanding of the potential negative consequences if the risks aren't managed. The capacity to manage the risks is limited by the quality of your people, your resources and the amount of energy. So setting up things like the um, Australian Cyber Security Centre, absolutely necessary, bringing together people from various agencies who can look at it from their agency perspectives. Is there enough of them? No, of course there isn't. Is there something? Yes, there is. So they have to, like any hospital would do, they triage the issues. So is an attack mm -hmm. on the New South Wales Parliament more important than an attack on St Vincent's Hospital? Well, in terms of kinetic effect on, on people, now people die in the hospital, um, politicians get a bit upset. I'm being facetious, obviously, but... So to be prepared, there's only two options. You've got to keep running 100 miles an hour to keep up with the variations in the threat capability and plug the vulnerabilities in our various systems. At the same time, mm -hmm. the adversary, and I don't care whether they're criminal or state based, the adversary is doing the same to find the weaknesses uh, and exploits in the system. And... The big tech companies, some of them are better than others, but they will introduce a piece of software 
And for them, it's about getting it to the market, having people adopt it. But have they done all the yeah. security stuff that's going to make it secure? And and so there's some great yeah, platforms right. around, but Zoom got into trouble for the same reason. Yeah, there was a perception, I'm not saying it was in the truth, there was a perception that Zoom was not secure. But it was probably more about the management of Zoom because Zoom was not designed to be a secure conferencing platform. It was designed to be a platform for people to engage with each other. So then, of course, when COVID came in, everyone said, how do we communicate? So Zoom... Teams was rushed out in three six five as as a as a, a free good, and it had a better crypto element in terms of how you could manage your, your security controls than Zoom had. But Zoom's fixed that now, so I, six of one, half a dozen of another. But I I can't open either when I'm in my system at work because both of them have a level mm. of potential yeah. vulnerability yeah. that would make my system vulnerable so we don't do it. There's, there's ways around all these things, but it costs money, it costs time, it costs expertise, and there ain't enough expertise and there ain't enough time, really. So it's just a race. So essentially, all of those university students out there, get onto those hacking competitions because we need you. Yeah, well, and also... The one thing I've just learned is is it's not the systems don't hurt people. People hurt people. It's people. It's always the people. <laughs> Jason, it's been fantastic talking to you, mate. Thanks very much for your time. All good fun, guys. And hopefully no one hacks the service. I, I've learned so much. And I know. I'm like, I feel like we've already been hacked. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I'll finish with the thing I say most Thanks people. very much, Jason. Just be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> Oh, well, that's optimistic. Yeah, that's good Thank to Thank you. That's great to end on. Be afraid, be very afraid. I'm just going to go and walk out into traffic. My parents <laughs> never taught me what to do. 